Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity and I have a great episode for you today. Intercom co-founder and chief strategy officer Des Trainer sat down to talk with Ratty Jirawa, our senior group product manager, and Brian Donahue, our VP of product. They talk about AI, our new product, Fin, and generally what it's like to be a product leader in the era of AI. Des began by asking Ratty where we're at with Fin, or breakthrough AI bot powered by GPT-4. Yeah, it's an exciting week for us. We have over 400 customers now getting set up, set up with Finn. And looking back at the numbers that we have with customers, we've served over a quarter million answers. So these are powered by AI, which we're super excited to see the results. Uh, for customers getting started instantly, we see up to 50% resolution rate, which is so impressive. And a resolution rate meaning like the customer probably got what they wanted. Exactly. And the quarter million figure, that's like people, like citizens of the internet, asked a question on some website and actually got the answer through Finn. Exactly that. It's that's- super. And just seeing the reactions from customers and getting those questions resolved is exciting for, for us. For like three days, that's good going, I guess. Yeah. Right? Brian, could you talk us through how Finn came about? I can. And it's actually a long story. And I think even though so much has happened so quickly, the reason we've been able to move quickly is because we've actually been working on this when for you say a year. quickly, how quick? Well, so like we've been working on resolution about the old version of really the old version of Finn in a way, because it's the same core product proposition, automatically answer your customers' questions. But we've been working on that for years as well as other ML products. But when it's quickly, it's ChatGPT opened up everyone's eyes, including our ML experts, Fergal and his team, to what the new tech was capable of. So really from uh, November 30th was where first the team was like, got stuck in, let's validate, is this really as big a deal as we think it is? Within a week, they were like, this is a leap change. And from there, it was like um, going full on, okay, we need to change tack. We need to kind of rip up our plans and start over. And what we optimized for initially was we said, We want to build something fast that previously was not possible with this technology, but we want to do it really fast to get our hands dirty and to just like raise our hands and basically say, we are going after this. And so what we optimized for was the AI assist inbox features. And a bunch of people have built similar stuff here. Summarization, uh, make it more polite and all that sort of stuff there. Why? Because it's easy to do. And some of it's cool and some of it's actually pretty useful. But it was about mid-January, I think Mario from Fergal's team was like, because the big problem was, of course, hallucinations hallucination. Chat GPT is amazing, but it makes stuff up. Bit of a problem if you're building a customer service product, right? And so Mario said, hey, I think we can get over this. And it was a couple of weeks of the team kind of building conviction. From early February, Fergal's like, I think we can actually get over this hallucination problem. And then it was put those inbox features on pause, go all in on what became Finn. What was that mid-March when we got to the announcement? Yeah, mid-March, March 14th. March 14th, we announced basically a prototype you could play with. We said, we want credibility. We're not just hand-waving product that you can see screen grabs of. You can play with this. And then from there, we went. it went from one small team working on it to like, let's actually build this product that we can sell. So that's kind of what brought up to really this week. What do you think made it happen fast? Was it like the speed of, like it was like fingers on a keyboard? Was it the speed of decision-making? Was it simply the clarity of saying this is a priority? Like, like if you had to repeat that speed, what would you do? I think there were two phases of it. So I think the first phase, and this is something that Roddy and I were reflecting on here. Fergal was actually really protective of the team because this team worked so well together and they were so efficient at both testing the technology and testing out the product proposition of it. And he was very protective of like, we are able to move fast because we have this tight team. And he was actually like, I am the dictator here. No one is basically allowed to say anything to my team. I've Slack channeled and I've invited Roddy to one. I'm like, 
Virgo's probably going to kick you out tomorrow. Just so you know, this is what happened. He did. And he did. You got invited back soon. And like, okay, okay, you're officially welcome to the fold there. I probably got kicked out at that point or something there. So there, it was actually quite a protective. If we're going to move this fast, we need to just be like almost a wall around the team initially. And that was getting to that first state of like, is the product legit? Is it actually that good? So that was kind of like phase one. And, and it's just like working in there was just rip up how you worked before, how your plans are going. It's just every day was a stand-up. It's like, what has changed today in the world of AI, in our narrow world and what we're learning? Like every day you start with how much have things changed since I stopped working on this last night? And I think that's kind of continued there. And then there was phase two, which you can kind of maybe better articulate because he went from a small team working to get to that point and like, okay, we're going to productize this. And that requires a lot more folks. So the small team was like validating, hey, the LLMs or whatever can actually do the thing we think they can do. And then stage two was like, given that that bit is now like ascertained, let's build a product around it. Yeah, and there's a nuance, but it's an important one. It's not, can the LLM do the thing we can do? Can we put our system of control around this? And will that work to solve the fundamental handicap, which is hallucination? And this is where there's so many product judgment calls made by our technical experts. And this is, I think, critical is you really need your engineers as product engineers in this space because there's so many critical decisions that need to be, or judgments that need to be made early on to figure out where is their actual opportunity versus where is the, it not, the state of the tech not good enough given those handicaps. So it's, it's May today. I think February we decided that there's definitely something here. We'd start wrapping a product around it. When did we go to beta and how does the beta work? Yeah, one thing I do want to emphasize for folks, because we did launch on March 14th, the product yeah. was working at March yeah, yeah. 14th. We were already testing internally. And yeah. I think if people did visit our site, they could play around with it. Yeah. And so soon after, we knew we wanted to go into beta to validate this. Some of the decisions that we made throughout that we thought were core to this, making sure it doesn't um, hallucinate. So a week later, we started onboarding customers onto the beta to start validating. Does it do what we think it will do? Will it resolve conversations? And getting early customers onboarded onto that beta whilst we're building to help us validate was super key for this process. And in what ways like, would you say a beta is either more essential or different to like to like a standard like meat and two veg SaaS feature like photo upload or something like that? Like this is obviously a bit different. Yeah, especially when you're in B2B. I think there's a lot of features that or capabilities that you bring in. Of course, you're starting from the problem. You're trying to validate. You kind of might know or have solid hypothesis of how the outcome will be when you go into that beta. But when you're building, when there's a lot of change happening in the market, it's new to customers. They're excited, but you have no idea what their perception is. There's different ways that customers are perceiving quality. You have to understand from a business, are they willing to put this in front of the end users? What's the reaction from your end users? And getting to the end of the beta with a confidence that you validate the product works, but a willingness to know that the landscape is going to continue change. And like, where do you make the call that you've hit the right product market fit to start to sell to market? So the nature of those betas are quite different than what we typically do in typical B2B SaaS type of product. It's also interesting to see how customers themselves are kind of learning how to evaluate, like, you know, whether or not the feature works in a sense. Like there's, there's trade-offs between like, how accurate is it? How reliable, how trustworthy is it? How, like, you know, how fast is it? How, what does it cost? You know, and it's really hard to understand customers' weightings of those variables. And then also it probably changes from like B2B versus B2C, small number of customers, like, but are very important, large number of customers, no, no individual is that important. Did we learn anything about like how people think about this in general, like about like, you know, what does one expect of a AI chatbot? I think, yes. One thing that was interesting that we learned very quickly is 
in the bot world, we've had a lot of these like keyword-based bots. Mm-hmm. And customers coming in, I think the initial perception of them using keywords coming in and using this AI bot. But very quickly, what we've been promising in the industry is this conversational way of interacting with bots and seeing that moment where customers are excited to see their end users be served by something more conversational. So I think that was a key learning that we had was in the like, beta. Was the aha moment for customers, like what made them kind of believe? Yeah. You know, Because I think that everyone's been skeptical for good reasons. As in, yes, if the sentence contains the keyword blah, always reply blah. Like, I think that's what the if this, then that yeah. logic has been around forever. Feels like we've crossed some perceptual cliff with our customers here where they're like, oh shit, this thing actually works. What, yeah. what is it that causes that realization? Is it their own content or what? Yeah, I'd say it's our own content. It was interesting, all the beta calls and the intro calls with customers, we go in, there's excitement, there's a lot of big questions ongoing and everyone's trying to talk about the future if AI and the calls. And then we'd connect it to their content, present Finn to them. They'd start asking questions. We'd ask them, what's the most common question that comes into your support teams? They type it in and just seeing that answer come in with their own content was like the immediate aha moment for customers. And that's really what's driven us to be like, oh, this is a key moment for customers to see that this thing works. You put your content in and AI can really answer and solve those questions for your customers. Brian, what did you make of the beta? I think what's interesting and what I think is, is validated through some end user testing is this kind of a real before and after sense of the state of bots, or maybe it's like old and new bots. And we've actually heard in the end user testing our team did that people were like, oh, oh, wait, is this an old bot? Which they're like, like, and like, let's be honest, this is our bots as well, right? And, and a lot of end users are like, well, I don't have a great sense of those. I'm not so excited to engage with this. There's probably a fair amount of friction and hoops you're making me jump through. Oh, wait, is this a chat GPT bot? That's different. That is something that as an end user, I'm willing to, that will be a good experience. Yeah. So I think this will really emerge. It started because the, the chat GPT has had such broad usage. So there's this end user perception of quality. And it really comes back to, I feel like I'm, I don't know if people will say, I feel like I'm talking to a human, but I feel like I can have a normal conversation yeah. rather than a, I am talking to technology, use keywords, click these buttons, do this sort of technology focused thing and actually having natural dialogue is, and that's the huge shift in, I think overall the perception of quality that's going on from our customers and from end users, as well as like the core product proposition, which is automatically answer your questions with no setup, which is huge. But there's that conversational quality, which actually gives almost this whole gloss, this whole shine around the thing that really changes the flavor of this technology that we're in now versus the previous one. It's almost like the advent of ChatGPT has kind of like legit, re-legitimized or legitimized bots for the first time, such that everyone's willing to give it, give them a new try. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about building a product in this era of AI. What's changing, Brian? What's it like? It's been quite a ride. So I think what a lot of us have reflected on is, and it's really almost the last six months, really since December, that it's been like, whoa, this is back to startup mode. And that's been a refrain that's really rang true for everyone. And what does that mean? I think like there's a, there's a lot kind of wrapped up into that. And so I think the first thing, I don't know which is the first or second, but speed. Speed is somewhere near the top, maybe the top. We aligned on this in December and we said, we are, want to be the leader in AI for support. In order for us to legitimately have that claim, as well as having the product, we need to have the speed of actually getting that product into the market. We think where this is at now, that speed is absolutely critical. And that's not a truism, like speed always matters. Inside here, we always talk about how speed, how can you move faster, challenge ourselves on moving faster. But just last week, I saw someone tweet about, hey, Apple is not all about speed. They're happy to come second to market, but come with the best product and then they'll clean up. 
So I, I think it's not a truism because Spies has lots of risks in terms of product quality, product proposition, in terms of people's headspace and, and working health and stuff like that. But we've all aligned on it's about speed of moving fast for the product here. So th there's so much to un unpick from that startup mode. But one, it's like if everyone's kind of aligned towards that and towards like being really ambitious and aggressive, then you're kind of willing to tear up how we work, how we should work things are going to be messier and you kind of rip up process and you try to have like just enough. And, you know, we had too many Slack channels, but we had some like amazing Slack channels that eventually exploded in size there. And now, okay, you got to go back and clean it up. But I think the optimizing for speed, and I think what it is, I think one another critical ingredient here is like an absence of politics, an absence of people saying, hey, I need to have a strong voice here. I want to have an opinion here. And, and people actually just, aligning behind, hey, what can I do to help? And if that means just writing a little FAQ doc here and then getting the hell out of the way, okay, that's what I'll do. And the challenge is it's hard to know what you can do to help and everyone kind of needs, but if you have that spirit, then you can actually use speed as your anchoring kind of purpose here to like, we want to get this great, what we think is game-changing product out fast. And that can really galvanize people in a way that's actually incredibly energizing. It's a really fun way to work. But for some people, it's like too chaotic. I think it's important to bridge. We spoke a bit earlier about how we started with the core ML team. And so we've got this dictatorship, if you will. We've got a core team of folks when there's one decider who's validating the core concept of Finn. And then when we've now scaled, we're like, okay, we've got a product. We want to take it to beta. We want to take it to market. We've got marketing folks that we need to onboard, enablement teams that we need to work with each other. But we still want to maintain that same level of speed. And so we've moved now for people to understand the context of the challenges that come up, we've moved now from one core team and how do you scale it to the rest of the group, to the rest of the business for more folks to go on whilst maintaining speed. And so there's multiple challenges that we have in here is, but I'll start first with what we tackled there was having the common goal that everyone understood where we wanted to get to with Finn. And so giving people autonomy to make decisions, making sure that we have good ways to Can I ask on that yeah. specific thing, so like when you say where we wanted to get to with Finn, was that like scope and timeline? Was it like these features, this date, or what were we willing to give on anything? Yeah, we what we anchored on, which is interesting, is timeline was a good anchoring point for us. Yeah. I think you can pick scope and yeah. then let scope dictate your timeline, yeah. or you can pick a timeline and let that dictates your scope. Yeah. We picked a timeline. We, of course, roughly knew and validated yeah. what we could fit, but I think timeline was important because as business, we wanted to move fast and we wanted to get something to market and put it in customers' hands. And so we picked timeline as a good way for us, and then we validated what we could get into that timeline. And that was really helpful for us to stay focused on. We've got this timeline. We've got this scope that we think will be really impactful for customers run mm -hmm. <laughs> in many ways and giving teams the autonomy to make decisions and accepting the messiness that comes from it. And I think that's important when you're building in this space with AI that's much different to what we've done before is to allow for the messiness and yeah. be okay with the messiness. I think there's another critical point that you actually touched on, which is like the speed of decision making. And everyone knows this, right? But it's like so many things of easy to say, hard to do. And so when you have everyone's optimized, the speed to market is critical. We're aligned to what we're trying to do. We're even aligned to like the go-to-market goals, which we I think we did better for Finn than we've done elsewhere, which actually Owen, like he was able to give clarity on top line, here's what we're trying to do. And that also had like a ripple down effect when you can just have simplicity of what we're going after from the very top go-to-market framing of it. But the speed of like when you can build that muscle of fast decision-making, it is amazing because what happens is there's hard, naughty decisions to make and people get in and grapple with it. And instead of circling back 
and circling around and getting more information and getting more folks and not get reaching a consensus or the way as humans, we naturally tend to gravitate to, to make decisions on. If you get that muscle strong, it's energizing. Again, this is what's energizing. People can be not happy with the decision, but often they're like, I'm just happier we're moving happier because the of this sense of progress. And when you are in, on a, a bus and you feel like you're moving fast, it's just like, it's just a very exciting place to be. Like one, one specific example I remember, and I think we'll talk about pricing some of the challenging there, but this was where I was like, I knew there was a meeting on Monday. I was going to be flying, like work flying there. I'm like, my only chance is write up a doc, share everything I can, get it ahead of it because I can't be there at the meeting. The decision is going to be made there. And, you know, I tried hard and I failed. But anyway, that, that, but it's like you just get on board with like, this is the pace of decision making we need to make. And the pace of decision making is usually more important than the actual decisions themselves. I totally agree. I, I also think it's worth like flagging for listeners like uh that's set at the very top, like Owen, who you referenced earlier, is our CEO. And on Sunday evenings throughout this whole project, I've been having calls with Owen where we just talk through like, what are, what are the unknowns, unknowns? Like, are we, you know, all the, all the questions we're aware of, like, how early should we go? What model will we use? What will we charge? Whatever. And I think if we're slow, why on earth would you be fast? And if you're slow, why on earth would the designers or engineers move fast? It's just, it's impossible. Like, there's no point in trying to work as fast as you can if you know that, hey, well, it's going to be another two weeks before we make the decision. So I think it, it's it's worth flagging. Like this project has proven to me something that, even though I, I say it a lot, like speed is life and all that. Like this project has been really good evidence of, it actually has to be in unison. There's no good me running around being like telling people that speed is important, if like it takes us like six months to decide what we're going to charge for the feature or whatever. It's like it has to be, one hundred percent together. The variables here are one price, also speed, also latency or speed and latency, also availability and quality. So you've got all of these variables of the LLM models on top of like our system around it and what we're able to, how we're able to interact and get the, the quality of product we want. And it's all changing really fast. So OpenAI, when they released ChatGPT with the API, which is GPT Turbo, that was 10x cheaper than 3.5. So suddenly the whole dynamics are shifted. And so suddenly features that before were not feasible are now like, whoa, 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 whoa. The whole market here has changed wildly. And then you go back to, wait, what is the quality? Is the quality good enough? And then, and it's actually fast. So sometimes the, the cheaper models are super fast. So you you don't have a clear one-to-one of more expensive necessarily. And then you end up like, and this is like one of the things we learn in beta. It's like one of the questions we need to work out and we'll probably for, spend forever working out is like, what is the trade-off between the speed of the end user getting the answer and the need for like extreme accuracy or even just beautiful text wrapped around the answer in a sense, like in that the right answer badly phrased in zero, 0 0.1 seconds might actually beat a very elegant answer in 10 seconds in terms of like what keeps the end end user happy. I think that's a challenge that I think everyone in the space is going to need to solve because it's so new for businesses and customers, there is yeah. also not very many strong opinions because yeah. customers are still learning what they want in the world. Yeah. I think that's something that's been really interesting throughout the beta and even now is trying to extrapolate from people how they perceive quality mm -hmm. and how they value quality. And going back to that point of price and not having that separate as within the company as we're making decisions on Finn is you're thinking about the pricing, you have to think about in product because if you say, oh, we want to raise the quality, okay, what's the cost of that? And is yeah, someone yeah. willing to pay for it? Okay, we're going to go lower quality, but it's going to be a bit faster. And are they willing to pay more or less for yeah. that? And so it's a continuous cycle that you have to think through and sense check yourself. What's worth going forward with and building with within quality and are customers willing to pay? Do they value it the same way as we do? 
And just given the torrential sort of amount of change that happens, it feels like all these decisions or principles or guidelines almost are quite perishable, right? Like we might have a really strong opinion about where where one must use GPT-4 versus Turbo or whatever. And then like two days later, we might change that opinion and fundamentally revisit questions all over again. What, what's a, How do you manage through a sea of like pretty extreme change? This is like where I look back, I think, oh, I got this wrong. Uh, trying optimizing for speed, but then like when we got new information about the availability we're going to have and how this was going to change things and like, okay, because you're comfortable working in a small unit that's effectively you can all get on board each day. And now when we're like, oh, I don't know, it's scary how much it's hundreds of people working on this now. And so if you make a significant change based on information from yesterday, like everyone's got to be like, oh my, everything's changed. And then it changed again the next week. So this is the human reality of it's really hard to work at scale when the floor underneath you can have such dramatic shifts. And this is where it's like the equivalent of OpenAI could GPT-4. It's possible if they do it next week, it could be 10x cheaper. Like that is a daily reality. And that is, and, and I think this is the broader challenge of, we were talking about the messiness and the uncertainty. And you talked about, this is with like the, the models is like a core part of this because so much is changing and shifting here. But the broader picture is so uncertain. And like, this is also something we've talked about is like, how do you build with like the, the product uncertainty of what's happening? Because no, everyone's trying to figure this out. Like, for example, is, is our messenger going to be irrelevant because everyone's just going to go to Google and Google will be their new assistant to actually do all of this? Or maybe Google's going to be irrelevant, actually. No, no, no. They're the ones who are going to be disrupted. The, the, the possibilities for plausible multi-billion company disruption, it's even beyond that, like you think the scale of that, is all like reasonably plausible to think about. And then you've got to figure out, well, we need to build something here today. So I think this is also feels new, that we're in this space where the macro uncertainty for plausible alternate universe realities that we could be in six months versus what can we build right now? And can we build that on unshaky ground? It's like a, this is a new challenge for everyone. And then you kind of mapped it to like, hey, this has changed, that's changed. And everyone likes, like most people like a little bit of stability to work from. And I think everyone needs to recognize like stability is kind of not a thing anymore. It's not an asset. It's just not a, if you want to work in a stable product, that means you're working on teams who previously handled the uncertainty and you're kind of riding their coattails almost of like, okay, you got success and now you kind of have a more cushiony space to kind of do your iterative work. And that's like a valid place to, that you hope your company gets to. But I think the other side here is also the innovation and the uncertainty, all that is you can't extract one from the other. So if you want to be working on, on the defining what the next version of products is and where this industry is going, you got to be willing to like jump into the chaos and, you know, into the vortex and hope, you know, all your limbs stay attached when you come out. But they generally do, right? It's just yeah, software. Most of the time. Most of the time. If I was, I'll ask you both this, and um, I'll start with you, Brian. It's just, if you're talking to an earlier stage startup, let's say like, you know, 50, 100 people or whatever, and they're about to begin their sort of first adventure in AI, what would you advise them? Like, what, what are, if you have to give them like two or three sort of like directional, like here's what, you know, would it be like embrace the uncertainty? Would it be like move move as fast as you can? Would it be sit back and watch and pick your pick your shot? I, I think it's like, um, I, I was at some of our customer conferences and talked to some folks who are also looking at building things and, and they're like, how do you handling all this uncertainty? And there's so much there. There is so much value 
that we are sitting on in terms of what this technology unlocks that was never before possible. And it's buildable now. So there's like never before has someone building product had as many options. So we have way too much and we're trying to focus and trying to figure out how can we balance our investment. There's a hundred things we want to do. And we're pretty confident 50 of them are going to be built and are going to be valuable. There's too much that's available now. So if you're a startup, just choose the next step. Like, like to think big and make a big bet on, you know, how whole product models are going to change. Okay. You need a big investment there, but I think there's so much that's buildable now that a company can make traction on. So that's where I feel like now is the best time to be a startup because exactly like our summarization feature and, you know, loads of people have built this now, right? Six months ago, Remember Rob was at a show and tell, uh, Rob from Team ML, and he, with the previous version of tech, investigated, can we do this? Because we knew this was valuable. And he did a two-week exploration. He's like, no, there's nothing here. Sorry, folks, my show and tell is I tried to find something. Turns out there ain't nothing here at all. Six months later, I genuinely think it was under a day that he actually just put the wrapper in around this thing to get this feature. So that's where we're at. Stuff was not possible before. It's not only possible now, a lot of it's reasonably straightforward to build on this. So I think this is like an amazing time for any product builder to be going after a space. So I think it's like choose a near-term value to get on because it takes time to build product and make and commercialize it and get that. Find that near-term value that you can start thinking about where it's going in the future, but don't get paralyzed by the fact that we've got so many alternate universes in front of us like now. Like the child in the sweet, sweet shop, whatever. Oh, yes. I would also say you don't need to pick a new thing to do. I think there's so many, even just if I look at what we did at Intercom when GPT launched last year, is we looked at the jobs and the problems that we wanted to solve. And like, that's still very core. You don't need to build a new thing, find a new niche. You can find existing problems and then using this new technology, how can you solve for it? Yeah. And then pick one. Yeah. Don't pick a ton of things, pick one thing and go after it. So and like then like things will change. New ways to do things as opposed to new things to do. Right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly that. How do you both think about the idea of like, moats in business here so like in brian your example and i think yours also roddy the risk would be right if you're a startup you're like you know you have a to-do list or project management app or whatever and you say hey i've thought of a cool thing that i think that these llms can do so i'm going to go and do it if it was easy for you it's easy for everyone so how do you think about the degree to which you're outsourcing the cool features and then ultimately the great democratization of SaaS might happen where everyone can build all the cool things that you're building too Maybe it's a question possibly like, you know, beyond the scope of what you actually spend your day on. But like, what's your reaction to that? The idea that like these features are actually done by somebody else and we're just APIing into them. Yeah, the moat and the competitive advantage is a hard question because of that. So, you know, we think of what Intercom as a system has and where are our competitive advantages within that with the data that we have, which is a huge source Potentially there, we're not unique in having that, but we're in a sm way smaller group of people who have some of those characteristics. So how can we lean on that? But it's super hard and it's like sustainable differentiation. And it's like, how will it change? Will it matter or not, right? And then it's also, will technology make that differentiation moot? I think competitive differentiation is part of this as well because that will dissolve. So I think the, the way we're thinking about it is just think short-term. Do we have differentiation Hey, three months would be good. Maybe six months would be good. And we'll see what that buys us. And, and the reality is there's probably not a world where you can, you know, build something for a year and you're differentiated for a while. I don't know if that yeah. world ever really existed, but 
it's, I think it's, it, that's hard. If it's like network effects or shit like that, you might like use in it. You know, simply, you know, ChatGPT existing doesn't make it any easier to kill LinkedIn or something like that. But, you know, yeah, I, I, there are still some types of moats, but I think in general, uh, simply building a lot of product might not be one, especially when you're not really building, you're just building API calls into it, in a sense. Another interesting thing, though, is that it's, you know, for us as builders in this space, it's incredibly hard. To, it's not incredibly hard. It's impossible to stay on top of all the stuff that's happening. It's actually incredibly hard to stay on top of all the stuff happening in Intercom, in our own fin project. No one can really keep up with all the stuff that's happening there, never mind the macro industry. But what about your customers? Their job is not to stay on top of all this stuff, even though they're now being asked to do it. And I think the implications of this, that no one can really keep up, no one can really think through it, because I think brand will increase in importance because people say, I need a trusted part. I need someone who's going to do a lot of the work for me. And I can just know this company will figure out the good stuff. And they'll make that available to me so that I don't have to figure out, look at 100 startups and 100 variations here. So I think brand and actually being a company for whatever you're selling that your customers can rely on, will you figure out what matters from this and make sure that's in the product? Because I would be very happy if I can just offload that whole mental, how the hell do I think about AI to you? So brand, I think, arguably matters more in this space. I think that's totally true. The interesting thing about that is like, if you take maybe it's just our industry, like as in people don't they're not free to change, you know, help desk every few months. It's very messy. It's not maybe like note taking app or something like that might be slightly different, or like a to do app where you know you just copy over your incompletes and you're done. But I think when people are picking like a tool, whether it's like say project management or communications or support, they're probably making a decision that's at least one year in length, but probably more because migration's no joke for a lot of these things. So what they're really looking for in a brand is like am I picking the right sort of horse? And oftentimes what that means is like, if new shit drops, will these people be able to react to it and make the most of it? Or are they going to be stuck forever, like, you know, doing press releases that don't actually amount to any software whatsoever? So I think that aspect of brand, the idea of like, are you betting on a product that's going to keep getting better? Or are you betting on a product that hopes the world never changes? And I think the latter category will be a, will be a bad bet at a time like this. One other thought that's kind of circled around my head, Tom, is it's like product builders. That's what you hope for, right? You hope that you're in the middle of a technology leap. And I don't know, you both are laughing at me. I don't know what's going on. There's some joke there. But I think that's what you hope for. You hope to be able to have, and we, you know, you talk, oh, the world has changed and we want it to be in this wholly changed space. And it is, it's for real. And so like, it's a great time to be building product and we're lucky to be working in this space. I mean, that, that's how I kind of feel. Even though it's head wrecking, you can't keep up and the, the ground beneath us is almost forever shaken up. But this is fun. This is like why you want to build product, right? Is get your get stuck into this stuff. What's it like on the ground? Like from that point of view, Addy, like is in the implications that you find yourself like reading Slack way into the night, being like just trying to stand up everyone or like, hey, how does that play out? Yeah, I'm in Slack a lot. That is true. Mm-hmm. But I also am okay. And I, I think a ton of companies who want to move in this space in AI are going to have to be okay with not knowing everything and giving, making sure you have clear goals for your teams. Um, for us, that's worked really well where the teams have clear goals that they need to go after. So you and worry I, less because you know everyone's aligned on what we're actually trying to do. Exactly. And I know 60% of the time what's yeah. going on. And yeah. any key decisions are usually surface that you'll catch. And yeah. sure, there's things that drop, but generally we're going in the same direction as a team. And on the AI piece, like people are excited to work in this new space. It's a great opportunity for a lot of folks where you've been wanting to have this exciting new thing happen, yeah. learning how ML works, learning AI, as well as getting involved in that. So it's quite good yeah. on the ground. Of course, there's pain points. I'm not going to make paint it as a rosy yeah. thing. And I'm sure we can 
write a blog post and we'll tweet yeah. and more details about it. But it's exciting on the ground. It, I was talking to a friend recently. We had this like thought experiment. I was imagine it all just went away. Like, as in, imagine just for whatever reason, someone deleted all of the LLMs and we have to just go back to the world of like SaaS. You know, it's kind of feels so much more boring looking back now because like even the features that are pure like SaaS, you know, kind of one on one for us, even like let's say ticketing in our help center or whatever. Even they, like, we're still looking at them going, at some point, we're going to come come back to you with an AI perspective and work out, can we find tickets with a common root cause and merge tickets and all, you know, all sorts of fancy shit like that. But, like, it's if this wasn't here, it really, in hindsight, feels like we were getting towards the end of the SaaS cycle. Like, like we'd worked out how to build, like, you know, CRMs for farmers to keep track of their roosters. Or, you know, it's like, how many more, like, tail end sort of features could we build? If we just take a step up, if you like, and get into sort of fluffier, forgetting about intercom, are you excited about AI in your own life or in or even in your life as a sort of like employee of a tech company? Like, is there other areas or other products that you'd like to see AI in? Have you seen it used anywhere interesting yet? I'll take this a different direction, which you may want to shoot down. But for me, what's interesting getting a little closer to the tech is like the language ability. So I think there are so many philosophical questions that were like good for college students to kind of rattle on about with their professors and you go on there and it was all academic in that sense. And this has been going on from the 60s and 70s, actually 50s, when is the Turing test? Can you, you know, grab that a little, what do you mean, like what is knowledge and stuff like that? Or Well, what does it mean to learn? Well, what does it mean to learn? What is knowledge? What is reasoning? Yeah. And now it's all relevant right now. So it's like the, well, here's like an example of this. I don't know if this is interesting to other people, but it's like, to, you know, ask Fergal, you know, do you, well, does GPT understand? Well, no, it doesn't understand. But I saw him in another Slack thread of like saying it's comprehension is actually kind of remarkable. So does a robot understand things? And it's like, well, it, it doesn't do language like we do, right? Because it just predicts that blah, blah, everyone kind of vaguely knows how this works, which makes no sense in our heads of how this could possibly work. And then it's also like, well, how did you learn your language? You have no idea. Your brain learned your language. I find myself thinking way more. I remember th hearing neural nets. I'm like, oh God, the programmers are getting a oh, neural net. Yeah, right. Come on. You're not even close. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, now I'm starting to think of my brain more like the machine of like, I have no idea how I learned language. You know, you learn your second language quite deliberately, but your first language, your brain was programmed to learn it in a way that evolution built. I, I just think this stuff is incredibly interesting and it's all relevant now. It's all relevant now. So for me, that part of it is interesting. And then there's also like, now I'm going even further. You, you, go, it's like you go into politics and you, oh, AI and everyone, all the fear of AI, which is, seems reasonable, right? But it's like, damn, you know, in, in democracies, humans aren't so good at voting. I don't know, have we really earned our right that we think we have? Because uh, I'd kind of welcome a little more rational voting choices in the future. So, you know, there's part of it, you, you can zoom up to that level where you, and actually this AI kind of makes you more reflective of our species. And we always think we're amazing and wonderful whenever someone's competing against it, but it's like, damn, we got, we got, we got to live up to the promise we've all said about it. So I, my head goes a lot in those directions, which I think is the interesting stuff to, to think about. And then with kids and seeing how they kind of adapt to the technology as well, but it's still been small for my kids actually using the stuff there. So, so that for me is the juicy places to go is like the academic questions that are now front, center, and valid, and be fun time to go back to college now and be able to talk about this stuff. Continuing the tangent, for me, it's more the relationships that normally you build relationships by talking to people like this. And imagine with the advancement anyway of generative AI, is, there's ethics behind this, but imagine feeding it conversations that you've had with 
a friend, a parent, a partner, and then being able to have a conversation there. Can you have relationships with machines? And I think that's a, it's of course not related with B2B SaaS, but I think that's interesting to start to build the ethics make around. Make it personal? Yeah, make it make personal, then it's really that. personal. And all of a sudden, do you build relationships with machines? How does that change humans and how we interact in the world? I think that's going to be interesting to watch. And whatever about other people, like, you know, building a model of somebody else so you can like have a fake conversation. I think the infinitely easier challenge perhaps is to build a model of yourself. Like giving one of these things access to every thing you've ever communicated digitally in any form, everything you've ever spoken, whatever, your voice, your look, et cetera. And you can imagine like, you know, having effectively a shadow bot that actually does your job for you like 90% of the time. And that shadow bot just knows to escalate to you whenever like it does not know how to do something. You know what I mean? We're not far from that. Well, I'm curious to see where, where, what, how open are we as a world to have yeah. this integrated into us? I think it's always been a theoretical conversation of like yeah. machines and AI and what it could do. So I'm curious to see from a personal level and everyday life how people will actually genuinely integrate this and how it changes how we relate to each other and create yeah, connections. What about you, Dad? Where are you excited about? Well, Where's this your new note taking up that I was going to talk about? <laughs> you uh, have been talking about note taking apps no, a lot. Uh, no. I joke. I'm, I'm actually, you know, uh, like, I believe in AI in so many ways. The one area I, I I must like write down some thoughts on this, but I'm actually not super excited by the sort of text generation features that like so many of the, like you know everyone everyone who has a text area has now got the ability to expand on this thing, and the expansions generally generally tends to be like kind of like word salady, and yet I think that's everyone's kind of like the hello world of AI. I think you just kind of so you throw this out just to make sure all the endpoints are working or whatever, but um. I think where I get most excited from a future-facing point of view is I think it'll be like the great democratizer for UI where there are so many products we use on a regular basis. I'm not going to name names, but Workday is one of them. Um, <laughs> Koopa is another. There are, there are plenty, honestly, where they're designed for the administrator in the company, but not really for the end user who might be affected by the software, say. So like I'm sure we employ people who think the Workday UI is great. I, I, I'm sure somebody somebody somewhere in the world thinks it's the right UI. But for me, it's to say re- request a day off. It is like non-trivial. You know, similarly, like I was in a tool yesterday to approve access for provisioning for something to somebody, and it's not that the UI is necessarily bad from a like a Jakob Nielsen one at one point of view. Like the drop downs line up, the text areas line up, etc. It's more like that this product is capable of so many things because it's a hub for like HRIS or for whatever. It's that my specific usage of it centers around one or two things like requesting a day off or approving an expense or something like that. And yet it feels like I need to go on a training course to know how to do these things. The example you're probably, you'd both be familiar with is like Google Analytics, right? Like you've, you know, both experienced it at some stage. You probably were once a certified GA or approved educator or something like, you know, grand philosopher of Google or whatever. And like, you know, the, the fact that you actually have certification is kind of almost part of my point because you get those certifications so that you can answer questions like, well, given this interface, tell me how would you find the highest performing referral CPC AdWord that worked for us in Norway between the period of July and August or something like that. And, you know, the idea is you know how to do that, and you don't, and I don't. And me and you could do it, but it might take us four hours, but Brian knows how to do it in like 14 minutes or something like that. And what I think will, you know, genuinely will see happen is a lot of these UIs will disappear for the, the regular folk, and they'll just type the thing they're trying to do. 
an example of this is Equals, which is actually built by two former intercomrades, where like what they're doing is basically, you know, command, you know, obviously it's a you know next generation spreadsheet with live connections to live data, et cetera. But one of the things they can do is you press command K and you just start trying to type the thing you're trying to do and it will work out what you're trying to do and then generate the Excel commands that you needed to know that you never fucking knew because none of us know Excel codes or commands and it'll do all that for you and you hit return and you're done. So like you might be like, how do I make, how do I increment this cell if that other cell is blank and you're just like increment if the other one is blank and it'll just do it all for you. I think like that's an example of like what I would call like democratization because like previously all of this was only accessible to people who like legit knew Excel or legit knew how to use Google Analytics or whatever. And now all of a sudden we're all going to have access to the same power because the thing I think that this new like language effectively will let us do is like the gap between being able to express what you want to do and being able to do it will narrow to zero. Whereas before there was a big clunky thing in the middle of become an expert at using blah and that expertise is just no longer needed and now i just think we can all say to the machine either typing it or saying it out loud what it is we want to do and the machine will just go and do it i think that like i don't know when that will happen i'm pretty high certainty it will happen because i just think there's you know it's too it's too much better than the current experience of tabs drop downs and mouse clicks so i think it will happen and when it happens i think it's like a kind of trapdoor change for the very nature of software I've talked to a lot of people about this. I don't think any of us are really ready for it. I don't think we know what it really means. Like, it's hard to imagine UI without UI. You know, it's hard to imagine a lot of these things. But, and I, I don't think UI goes away. I think I still think there's visual stuff. People still want to see what's happening. But the actual nature of like complicated UI will fade away. So just write in English what it is you're trying to do. Done. And that is like a new era of software. And I just hope I'm retired before it all kicks in. Interaction design is moot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know who should be like all over this and somehow isn't as content designers. I, you know, I follow a lot of them, you know, but I think there's a huge world to come for them or for somebody like them if, if, you know, if they can capitalize on it. And how quickly or who would adopt it first? I think, at least for me, like, thinking of yeah. GPT and like the change for me, what, where I was like, oh, this is huge and impactful was, of course, from like a SaaS business where I was like, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But at Christmas at the Christmas table, my grandparents were talking about it and interacting with it and seeing a behavior change happen very quickly and be adopted. And so I'm curious when that change happens, will it happen with our generation or is it going to be folks yeah. coming up now that changes the nature of software and the way that we interact it, with it? I think a lot of it depends on how accessible it becomes as well. Because if yeah. you think about like just text-driven interfaces, they're equivalent to audio interfaces because of Whisper, the open AI tech. And then you think about like the future of Siri, you think about Amazon's Echo devices and Cortana and all the rest of the gang. You know, it's hard to like, you know, all of a sudden somebody who's not even good at computers sitting in a room can now have access to like digital commands of the entire internet, like order me a taxi, send me a pizza, whatever. All of that becomes just like trivial. And like that, it's going to change things. Like I just, I, I, I don't want to uh, understate it, nor do I want to say I have a clue how, but I just think the whole world's going to be different. And, it's an exciting time for sure. Anyway, we better wrap here. Thank you so much for joining us and updating us on Finn. This has been a good chat and we'll see you all again soon. This is Inside Intercoms.